you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. This morning's sermon is the first installment of our biblical training series. Um, This is part of the vision to develop biblical values, biblical training in deacons, as uh, we have here on stage with our building blocks. The biblical training series specifically seeks to address cultural issues from the biblical position. Greg introduced the series last week by leading us through Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6, which gives us the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. This command serves to frame the conversations as we engage cultural issues over the next few weeks. So this morning we're going to be addressing what is the Christian's response to the sexual revolution. We're going to be working from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and since we're just dropping into the book for one sermon, I want to give a little overview since it's valuable in how we read even the chapter that we're going to be in. Paul is writing to a people who are brothers and sisters in the faith. He addresses the letter to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Later in chapter 1, he moves to help them understand that Christ is not divided, that the work of men such as Paul himself, Apollos, Cephas, are not the origin of the gospel. Christ is the origin, and because of that, the gospel is not divided. And they must see that these men are teaching the same gospel. Paul is calling them to adhere to the one true gospel, to stand firm on this gospel, and to not allow themselves to be drawn away. Unfortunately, this is also precisely what is happening at the church in Corinth. Starting in chapter C, we see a, I'm sorry, chapter three, we see a people who are beginning to get off track. And this is where we see Paul begin to address address specific issues in the church. His correction finds its end in chapter 15, where he addresses questions about whether Christ actually resurrected. At the end of chapter 15, he makes his final appeal with this, which is in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In a similar manner, I want you to issue the same call to you. Redeemer, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the Lord's work. Your labor is not in vain. As we work to answer the question, what is the Christian's response to the sexual revolution, I want you to hear a clear answer. Know that your identity is in Christ. Do not be deceived and go and make disciples. So saying that again, know that your identity is in Christ. Do not be deceived and go and make disciples. I want to encourage you using Paul's own words from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in, in Christ Jesus, that in every way, you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will suffer, I'm sorry, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
God is faithful, by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Know that the elders of Redeemer are praying for you as we go through this training series, and we are thankful for each of you. We see how the Lord is, as that that passage states, enriching you for the work that he is calling you to do. His gifting to you is not by accident, and it will enable you to meet the life to which he has called you. Remember, the Lord is faithful, and as you do life imperfectly, rest in the reality that he will keep you guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And go ahead and stand with me if you would. reading verses 9 through 11. This is the focus of our time to get it today. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. <clears throat> You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. You guys, please be seated. I want to provide a little context to chapter 6 specifically. It may feel a little odd, if, you, if you're familiar with chapter 6, it may feel a little odd to come through early in the chapter from a section that talks about lawsuits among believers it becomes easy to, to ask the question, how do we get from lawsuits to the unrighteous, to the sexually immoral, um, idolatry, uh, swindlers, and so on? Paul is simply trying to make the distinction between those people who are righteous and those who are saints. He wants the Corinthians to understand that they are no longer to act as unrighteous people do. They have been called into fellowship with Christ. Therefore, this should begin to impact their thinking and ways of interacting with their fellow man. Starting with verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Here Paul begins to help them and us understand what unrighteousness looks like. This stands in contrast to the gospel he delivered to them. He had delivered them to, to them before, either in a previous letter or his own teaching when he was with them. In chapter 15, we read that he delivered to them of first importance the gospel that he had also received. These were a people who knew the gospel. That is to say, they knew that Christ had died for their sins according to the scriptures, that he had been raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he had appeared to many believers afterwards. Verse 9 is certainly an admonishment from Paul. In every way, he's saying, You foolish people! You should know better. The Corinthians were going before secular judges to solve their petty cases. They were not cases of murder or other heinous crimes. They were simply petty, everyday sorts of issues. Thomas Schreiner, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, calls this a heinous, or I'm sorry, a scandalous situation. Instead of dealing with these issues in a manner worthy of a people made righteous by Christ, they were bringing shame upon the church. 
and on the name of Christ. I think Paul wanted to provoke them to understanding. They were a people who knew but did not understand as they should have. The movement from knowledge to understanding to wisdom is something that we all need to wrestle with. It's incredibly easy to live only with knowledge. Even We even have our own idioms in the church to describe stuff like this. What The most often repeated one is it has to move from the head to the heart. You all know it. Come on. Um, it's just things like that are just funny little things that help us put our finger on the reality that we may know something, but we don't fully understand it to the point where it's actually produced wisdom in us. There's a story I heard a while back that I think illustrates this well. One of the podcasts I picked up in the last year is called The Darknet Diaries, and it's about computer crime. Coming from a technology background as I have, it's just a show that's, that's interesting to me. One of the first episodes I listened to was simply called Jordan. It's about a kid that grew up in the same generation as me. Jordan and I are part of that generation who had an analog childhood but lived through the transition to a digital adult, uh, I'm sorry, a digital world in high school and early college. What that means is that my generation was the last to have a phone still mounted on the wall at home. We didn't have any cell phones until maybe college or late college, and we didn't grow up with the internet but those things were bursting into the world by the end of college. Jordan was mischievous by nature, and as a child had a, few run, in, had run a few scams which got him some attention with his teachers and local law enforcement. He was a bright kid and needed an outlet for his active, creative mind. He ended up working for a private security company doing technology-related work when he was around 17. This was also when AOL Instant Messenger was becoming popular. And like most teenage boys at the time, he started using it to find girls. Some of the older guys he was working with suggested that he pose as a girl in order to check out the competition and up his game. So taking their advice, he set up an AOL profile as a 14, roughly 15-year-old girl. He started getting messages from older men almost immediately. He mentioned this to the buddies that he worked with, that he was getting messages from these pathetic, pervy older men. He'd even printed out a few of the chat transcripts to show them what, what was actually happening. One of the guys made the comment that these older men think they're talking to an underage girl. Jordan quickly realized that this was no longer fun, but that had to become something sinister. To cut the, short, the story short, Jordan started feeding information to the FBI. But it was also at that point that Jordan moved from knowing what was happening to thinking that this was something fun or funny to understanding that it was criminal. He had moved from thinking that these were just a bunch of creepy dudes to understanding that these men were a real threat, the girls that they were communicating with. We go through tr similar transitions in our Christian walk. We have aha moments as the Lord transforms us and pulls us away from sin. And if we're honest, some of those aha, aha moments are eerily close to the activities of some of those older men. Some may still be eerily close. Our changing worldview is reflective of the Lord's work as we move from knowledge to understanding to wisdom. The Lord calls us in. He makes each of us, each of us his adopted child 
I'd encourage you to recognize that he is doing this same work in you. That he's moving you through those stages of knowledge to understanding to wisdom. It is in these ways that he is keeping you firm until the end. On to the next four words in verse 9. Do not be deceived. These four words are a reminder to the Corinthians that they should not mix the old ways of unrighteousness with this new position they find themselves in. We understand, and Paul would agree elsewhere, that no one can do this perfectly. But he wants them to understand that they are allowing some of their old habits and desires and tendencies to worm their way into into their own lives. At the end of deception is a gospel other than the one he preached to them. In these four words, he is reminding them to hold fast to the truth. Moving now to the remainder of verse 9. I want to use the same technique as Paul to specifically draw distinctions between the righteous and unrighteous, between those living in the light and those living in darkness, but while also addressing some modern expressions of these things. We are, after all, seeking to answer the question, what is the Christian response to the sexual revolution? I'd like to biblically define sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, and homosexuality since we see it here in verse 9. Sexual immorality is sexual activity that occurs outside the union of one man and one woman. Idolatry, rooted in the Ten Commandments, is an idol that is something that is elevated above and worshipped ahead of the one true God. Adultery is the unfaithfulness of a person to their marriage vow. Homosexuality is people of the same gender engaging in sexual activities. I know that those definitions aren't exhaustive. I tried to make them as simplistic as possible for um, just what we're doing here and then also ears that may hear. So, And lastly, I want to define sexual morality or what I'll call sexual fidelity. This is the proper view of sexuality among the saints, both as Paul taught the Corinthians and what scripture is teaching us today. We are, first and foremost, children of God. Not, we are not single people first, nor married people, nor any other identifying statement we want to assume. We must come to understand that we are creatures living under the care and authority of, a crea- of our Creator. As Ephesians 1 tells us, we are chosen sons and daughters. David Pallison, in his book, Making All Things New, frames this well. Fidelity first orients you as a child of God in relationship to your father. You come under his care and his oversight. Fidelity then orients you as a steward of your own body. And later, fidelity orients you in relationship to your husband or wife, if God grants you the gift of marriage. In singleness, then, we steward fidelity for only ourselves. And in marriage, we steward fidelity in the relationship to our spouse. Adding to this, we can't define fidelity without also defining marriage. Genesis 2 sees the creation of man and woman and also the institution of marriage. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Scripture affirms that the union between the man and woman is not simply a legal matter, but that something deeply profound and spiritual happens as well. There is this binding, this one flesh union that occurs that we can't fully understand. It will in some ways always be a mystery to us. We see Jesus defending this union in Matthew chapter 19 where he says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It is, this one flesh un- it is in this one flesh union that sex is properly expressed. Paul also in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians gives positive affirmation as to this being the proper place of sexual activity where he says, But because of the temptation of two sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. This union, then, is the only place where sexual activity finds its home. I would add one caveat to this, specifically for people here at Redeemer. I know that there are people in here who have suffered sexual abuse and have been inflicted by the crooked desires of men and women around the world, locally, in your homes, and so on and so forth. We do not lay upon you the guilt or the shame of sexual sin. That's not what Scripture is speaking to here. If you do struggle with this, I encourage you to live free in Christ and no longer listen to the lies of the enemies or the lies of evil men and women. The Bible's view of where sex finds its proper home will naturally lead us to clash with the world. This is Paul's distinction of the righteous and the unrighteous in chapter 6. We are to live one way. The world is to live another. I'm sorry, the world will seek to live another. Natural divisions will occur as people just live within God's design and others seek to live outside that design. The sexual revolution, as we know it, is a response to the biblical view of right relationships and sex. This has not been the case, I'm sorry, this has been the case from the beginning. Adam and Eve committing that original sin in the Garden of Eden marred the created order and humanity, which then produced in us the desire to choose something other than the goodness of God. What we know today as the sexual revolution is a modern manifestation of men and women seeking to challenge and removed Judeo-Christian values of sex in Western, from Western culture and liberate those who live under perceived oppression of such values. Most of us, I think, would root this revolution in the 1960s, but I'd like to take us a little further back to the late 1800s. We see some academics appearing around the late 1800s and early 1900s who have had a significant impact on views of traditional sexual behavior. When I use the word traditional, I mean this biblical view of sexual behavior that we see coming through the last few hundred years. Whether, whether some of that was good or bad or not is uh, neither here nor there at this point. But um, Two of those guys are Sigmund Freud and Wilhelm Reich. Carl Truman in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, says this about Freud. Cultural artifacts, whether works of great literature such as the Iliad, or the raunchy lyrics of some throwaway pop song by the latest girl or boy band, 
reflect the human preoccupation with all things erotic. And Freud stands as the grand theorist of this fixation and, most important, as the man who offered an analysis of civilization and culture that takes this obsession into account. This analysis then began working its way through European universities. Some of his work became foundational as part of the cultural and political thought that came after him. Wilhelm Reich was later to emerge as part of the second generation of psychoanalysts after Freud. Reich married Freudian thought with the political revolutionary thinking of Karl Marx. Another quote from Truman referring to Reich, the traditional family with its high class sexual morality and repressive and repression of children's instincts helps produce the kind of pliant, submissive individual, I'm sorry, helps produce the kind of pliant, submissive individual who offers no resistance, but rather complete obedience to authority figures. And a direct quote from Reich himself, morality's aim is to produce acquiescent subjects who, despite distress and humiliation, are adjusted to the authoritarian order. Thus, the family is the authoritarian state in miniature. We've been hearing ruminations of this for a while, haven't we? That the world seeks to dismantle the family. This is certainly not by accident. And while Reich is very much political, like Freud, he also desired that humanity break free from what they saw as the repressive moral codes of the day. And moving a little further along after those guys, the 1920s, dubbed the Roaring Twenties, was another such movement in our history. Following World War I, it was a time of economic boom and liberation and cultural upheaval. The 1950s saw a Supreme Court case decision to protect the presence of nudity in films as artistic expression under the First Amendment. The 1960s came around, and we see what most of us think of of as the sexual revolution, but what historians call the second sexual revolution. This revolution grew from a conviction that the erotic should be celebrated as a normal part of life and not repressed by family, industrialized sexual morality, religion, or the state. Also in 1960, the birth control pill hit the market reducing what some might call the consequences of sex. We even heard one of our own presidents a couple times ago say the same thing about his daughters, this idea of removing the consequences of sex. From the 1980s to our current day, we see the explosion of pornography. Further, we're experiencing our own transitions in terms of how society views sex. The sex positivity movement is now asserting itself. This is a, this is a similar attitude to, to much of what we, we've even been talking about, but it's an attitude towards human sexuality that regards all consensual sexual activities as fundamentally healthy and pleasurable, and they encourage sexual pleasure and experimentation. Planned Parenthood and almost every other government organization in the United States push the mantra, if it's done safely and it's consensual, then it must be fine. And last, I want to return to Freud one more time. This, is, this final quote is from his essay, Civilization and Its Discontents. 
Man's discovery that sexual love afforded him the strongest experiences of satisfaction and, in fact, provided him with the prototype of all happiness must have suggested to him that he should continue to seek the satisfaction of happiness in his life along the path of sexual relations and that he should make this the central point of his life. And with that, I issue the same warning as Paul Brothers and sisters, do not be deceived. The world seeks to remake and reissue a new command regarding sex. It seeks to center our identity on pleasure and who and whatever we think we want to be. In our sinfulness, we seek to build idols which cater to our flesh. God does not allow humans to remake what he calls good. We must know and understand that morality is not defined by us. We are not the center of what is true. But as, as God's people, we must live in such a way to understand the truth, understand that that truth is defined outside of us. God is the creator and maintainer of truth. Therefore, we do not get to define our own identity. But how do we live in this world as the church, as people who are made righteous by Christ? We are here. The Lord has not called us home yet. How are we to live? Our initial question was, what's the Christian response to the sexual revolution? I have a couple responses this morning. The first one is a value that Greg preached on, uh, I don't know, probably two, three weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, which was hospitality. Starting in verse 9 of chapter 6. Starting with, Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I want you to observe something about that passage. There is equality among the unrighteous. There's equality among the unrighteous. The church has historically done a very poor job with this. Even among our own brothers and sisters in the faith, we struggle to treat folks with dignity, with care, um, and treat them fairly regarding just their struggles, where they are. We should not be creating special cases of sin which are better tolerated among people of faith than other more disrespectable sins. Please hear me say this. We are not to tolerate these vices within the church. Paul specifically addresses this in the last part of chapter 5 by telling us not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of any of those things. If a member of Redeemer Church lived a life characterized by any one of these things, we would move to discipline them according to Matthew uh, 18. What I'm specifically attempting to address is that as we go out into the world to make disciples, we should not be surprised that people have been swept away by these vices. But we should call them to faith in Christ, which then produces real hope. Do you look upon your neighbors, such as these, with these issues, with disdain or even possibly rage? believing even that they are unworthy of the same Jesus who calls you his own. Have you invited them to your dinner table? 
We have to be careful not to be swept away by the latest cultural phenomenon. Solomon reminds us in the book of Ecclesiastes that he searched high and low and experienced many pleasures and yet still came to the conclusion that all is chasing after the wind. We must be offering people the gospel. It is the timeless truth that will finally allow them peace, wholeness, security, and an actual Savior who meets them in their struggles. The gospel then becomes the only thing that tells them who they are. My second and last response. You were called into union with Christ. Walk in a manner worthy of that calling. You were called into union with Christ. Walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul reminds us that we are no longer unrighteous. Jesus washed, sanctified, and justified us. We have experienced a change of identity. We are now righteous. Verse 11 indicates a change of position. Not simply that we are progressing along the path of sanctification, but that we are actually something new. The same language is used in chapter 1 when Paul addresses them in the opening of this letter. As we see in verse 2, these people were called to be these people were called to be saints together with those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Simply, he is stating who they are, not who they are becoming. But how do we live like saints? The Lord act, acted upon us by changing our position before the Father. But how do we actually live in righteousness? Greg preached on Deuteronomy 6 last week. Verse 5 reads, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. If you are a sinner saved by grace, do you respond to the Lord's grace by loving him with all your heart, soul, and might? More specifically, is he what you love first? We have many loves, but is God what you most desire? In our Doctrine 101 class, we've been repeating a quote from Wayne Grudem that accurately describes how we should view God. When we realize that God is the perfection of all that we long for or desire, that he is the summation of everything beautiful or desirable, then we realize that the greatest joy of life to come will be that we shall see his face. This stands in stark contrast to the sexual revolution, which attempts to convince us that creation and pleasure can fulfill all we desire. We are not to lead ourselves, our families, or our friends away from sexual immorality. We must lead ourselves and those around us to the Lord. Here's what I mean by that. You can walk away from lust, pornography, and every other thing and simply replace it with another idol. You'll be no better off than you were before. Our hearts yearn for satisfaction and fulfillment. It is only when we come to understand the greatest commandment, the one that, that Jesus himself even spoke about, the one that says that we are to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Only when we understand that will our hearts become satisfied.
though we have been justified and that we are sanctified, that we are a people made holy, we are still very much in process. We're all messy people trying to live life with other messy people. In his book, Sex in a Broken World, Paul Tripp asks a tough question. What are you asking of pleasure? We could ask the same question of virtually everything in our life. What are we asking of food or TV or video games or podcasts or or whatever we're looking for? Whether you're Freud or you or me or Adam or Eve, we all have the same fundamental problem. We make idols to serve us. We think it's all about us. We believe that the things we find pleasurable, comfortable, easy, tasty, and on and on will finally bring the satisfaction we're looking for. These things all lie to us. Our hearts use them to supplant the Creator, and we begin to worship the created. Paul encourages us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Romans 12. By engaging the Scriptures, we are being trained by the Spirit to understand what is good, proper, and beautiful. Sex, no doubt, demands boundaries. We must understand that the boundaries given by God are for our good. We must turn away from the idea that these boundaries are spoiling what we could have. And we must see the beauty of the Creator. Our union and satisfaction fully realized is in Christ. Everything else will become pale in comparison. This is not to say that sex is not good or pleasurable, but that it must be held in its proper regard. I encourage you to realize that we also cannot navigate everything that we encounter perfectly. Sanctification is progressive in this way and will not end until we die. We are a holy people saved by grace with broken broken humanities. I encourage you to be diligent in reading the scriptures. And not only for knowledge, but for understanding. Go before the Lord in prayer. Take your struggles to Him, asking to see them as the the same way that He sees them. I encourage you to pray to help discern the truth of the Scriptures. And lastly, continue to seek relationships with other believers who care about your spiritual growth. We are living in a world that wants to see brilliance and wisdom in the ability to define their own morality. Paul is calling the church away from that here in chapter 6. Our adoption as sons and daughters should impact our behaviors. As we love the Lord, read His Word, and yield our will to His, these sins that plague us will begin to be renewed as He keeps us firm until His return. Here at the end of this, I want to set your mind upon the Lamb who is worthy. Don't set your mind upon the tarnished brilliance of the world, but set your mind upon His brilliance, being, and majesty. As we venture out into the world, it is Him they must see, and it is Him we must show them. From Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, 
dressed in a robe reaching to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white as wool, as white as snow. In his voice, sorry, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the shining sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look. I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Let's pray together. Would we thank you for time to um, work through your word? Would I pray that it illuminates us and edifies us? Pray that what we discussed even this morning illuminates and edifies us. 